This is The Guardian. We need a lot of important skills to get our job done. But honestly, everything we need won't be on your CV. Because as the whole energy industry is transforming, a change mindset is as important as your skills. I'm Melanie Forbrick, and I work at Siemens Energy. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. I'm back in the studio this week. On our recent trip to Plymouth for Politics Weekly UK, I was reminded a lot of how people often feel about politicians. But he made the laws and he broke them. Well, yes, I know, but don't they all? Haven't they continuously for years? Politicians have we had that have broken the law? Not like this, though. Now, as we return our focus to Westminster, I want to talk about one of the biggest issues of our time, the decline of public trust. For months now, Keir Starmer has been righteously going after Boris Johnson about Partygate. But over the last week, he's been the subject of a competing story. Beergate. We were there working. Um, we were doing pieces to camera. We did a members event. Why does, I think, why does the fact you're doing pieces to camera make it any I'm different? I'm explaining why we're in the office. That story feeds into a lot of the public concluding that all these tales of politicians' misbehaviour simply confirm that politics is now compromised and crooked, just as people are called back to their local polling station. We'll talk about all that and what some people are calling tractor porn gates. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Raphael Baer and Sonia Soda, a columnist for The Observer and The Observer's chief leader writer. Hello to you both. Hello, John. Hi. Hi. It's nice to see you again. Um, Before we talk um, about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer in any depth, um, I wanted to ask you, about Elon Musk being poised to take over Twitter. I don't think the deal is quite there yet. And and uh, you both tweet to a lesser or greater extent. Sonia, you tweet quite a lot, it's fair to say. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, I, I go through, I go through sort of spurts of tweeting quite a lot. And then, you know, okay. sort of less so. But yeah, I do. I do use Twitter. You're right. A lot. I'm looking for an excuse to give up, I think, or to certainly dial down my use of it. And, and Twitter being owned by someone who strikes me as a complete prat. It's quite a good excuse, really. Yeah, I find, I mean, I was definitely a Twitter addict and it was, you know, like any addiction, it was really doing me harm uh, and and dialed it down a fair amount. I still use it, but nowhere near as much as I used to. But does Elon Musk being poised to own it, is that going to make the difference? If it flushes out this, the weirdness, the weird fact that we are all generating free content for this company that owns this extraordinarily powerful tool, a transnational thing that is politically influential you just look at the role that donald trump had on the the damn thing uh, and raises the question of is this actually a public square if so why isn't it public and and who actually controls it and who gets to set the rules if we have that conversation it's a good thing frankly if it forces that conversation because that's actually the conversation we need to have do you think sonia if it wasn't owned by a big corporate interest you tweet even more i mean i know for a fact that about six months ago you took conditioner i don't want to say this but you took conditioner at the shower not shampoo by mistake, because you tweeted it. Oh, did I? How do you remember yeah, you that, did. John? I don't even remember tweeting that. You definitely did. <laughs> okay, that's probably an example of uh, sharing a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, do you think if if the ownership of Twitter was uh, somehow more on the lines of a utility and it was publicly owned 
and it wasn't corporate, then you'd tweet even more. I suspect I would, I and probably the rest of the world would probably tweet a bit less because one of the reasons why we tweet so much is because it's designed to be addictive and to sort of ferment anger and polarisation and that's what keeps people going back for more. So yeah, I actually suspect that I would end up tweeting a bit less but I have tried to be, um, I mean, not like Raph, you've taken a real step back from it but I've tried to be more um, conscious about the way I'm using Twitter. So I try and engage in dialogue less and I would have done a year ago because I think so much of it tends to be bad faith and there's like literally zero point to it at all. And just in conclusion, though, I suppose that one of the points about Musk taking over because he is said to be a free speech absolutist is the amount of bad faith and nastiness and argument for argument's sake and sheer rage is bound to increase. It'll get more toxic. True, but I already, I already think, actually, like, Twitter is absolutely dreadful when it comes down to taking down really kind of toxic personal racist abuse, misogynist abuse, for example. I, yeah, I find it hard to see how much worse it can get. Well, because you can be up to your waist in shit and then up to your neck, do you know what I mean? That's a lovely uh, metaphor. <laughs> right, on that note, we, we, will, um, we will move on. We are going to talk about um, so-called Beergate, a scandal that seemed faintly ludicrous a week ago, but now is, is may well have moved centre stage, and Keir Starmer, it's Keir Starmer's problem. And then Susanna Reid's excellent grilling of Boris Johnson this week on Good Morning Britain, and what that interview told us about the politics of the cost of living. Then we'll look back at the set of scandals playing out in Westminster at the moment and talk about how issues of privilege may have played into all this, particularly under the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson. In the context of something which I've raised on podcasts in the recent past, public trust, or the lack of it, that sense of disconnection and a sense, really, that the main effect of political scandals, wherever they originate, is they make people feel, well, plague on all your houses, you know, that, that, that they think that the entirety of politics and politicians are somehow implicated in all this. Now... This week, in the lead-up to the local elections, both main political leaders in England have been giving interviews on Good Morning Britain on ITV. We'll talk a bit about Boris Johnson, but there is a cloud hanging over Keir Starmer because of something that happened towards the end of April 2021. He was among 30 Labour Party people drinking beer and eating takeaway food at 10 o'clock on a Friday after a day's campaigning in the Hartlepool by-election. At the time, England was under step two COVID regulations, which barred anyone from socialising, and this is a quote, except with your household or support bubble. The Daily Mail has been, among other people, has been pushing this story for about a week now, uh, and Keir Starmer was asked about it on um, Good Morning Britain on Wednesday morning. This is how he defended himself uh, when he was faced with the mighty Richard Maidley and the aforementioned Susanna Reid. We were there working. Um, we were doing pieces to camera. We did a members' event. Why does, I think, why does well, the fact you're doing pieces to camera make it any I'm different? I'm explaining why we were in the office. Right, but we why were, were you in the office with food, takeaway food and beer late at night with 30 people? You've already said your wife couldn't go into her father's flat to clean. So how come so many of you were in a room drinking beer and eating food? There we are, Raph. You were rubbing your head as if to look pained and wearied. Um, I, I must say... On my own account, I at first thought this was the Daily Mail on a somewhat desperate, sort of opportunistic, transparently political rampage. Well, it can be both. But among it, other yeah. things, yeah, it can be both things. And I certainly feel that, that Keir Starmer and his people have handled this terribly, terribly badly. They couldn't get their story straight about whether Angela Rayner was there. He was on the Today programme recently. He was asked, I think, three or four times whether the Durham police had been in touch with him recently. He had no answer to that. And... um 
I think there were Labour MPs anonymously telling people this morning that he did look a bit shifty in the course of that exchange. It's not gone well for him, this all of a sudden, has it? No, there were a number of things going on here. Uh, one you know, is, as you say, that you know, the male can be participating essentially in a pro-conservative agenda to try and stir, stir muddy the waters uh, and try and get some of that mud to stick to Keir Starmer as a sort of vengeful act because Boris Johnson has been so damaged by Partygate. That can be true. It can also be true that Keir Starmer's defence of what he did, which is essentially, well, it was kind of work anyway, except work with beer and curry, you know, is in the same bit of the Venn diagram as well. It was a meeting in number 10, but also there was a birthday cake. You know, that's actually and that one got the prime minister fined. So, you know, it, on that basis alone, there is a case to answer at the same time that that shiftiness thing that you mentioned is potentially a problem for him. Not necessarily that people think he's a devious, duplicitous man who breaks the rules, but just something about the smart, smarmy lawyer thing. That's what the Tories would really want to pin on him that like there's just he's a bit of a shyster and I don't think he is that thing at all but I, I, I think he has a presentation issue that that plays to that a little bit but he's got very righteously worked up and gone after Boris Johnson on a sort of moral level in recent months and then along comes this story and he hasn't got a straight answer it looks pretty awful I mean I, I think I agree with you which is that they've handled it a lot worse than they could have done so for me substantively I think there is a difference like the question is you know, when you're working and there's a big group of you and you're all away from home and you're working in the same building, I mean, what are you going to do if there aren't any restaurants open? Are you all going to get your takeout and then go somewhere else and eat it and then come back together? Or are you going to do it together? So for me, whereas you don't have to bring everyone together in a room for a birthday party, you don't have to have a late night karaoke party, you don't have to send an email around saying it's a lovely sunny day, let's all get together in the garden. No, but pause there, pause 10. there, pause there. That's, that's a brilliant answer. You used to work for the Labour Party. I can tell you've done this before. That's a good answer. Well, maybe I should be running the country, John. <laughs> that was a joke. But why, why have they found it evidently so difficult to say that? Because well, it is quite I, clear. Yeah, I think on it's... That unfortunately, I think it's because the longer I've watched Keir Starmer, and I have to say, I mean, I, I hate to sound so down on, on him, but I wasn't very impressed with him in the Labour leadership elections because I thought he came across as really boring. I just don't think he's a natural politician. I think he's a lawyer. And um, for me, the difference between a really good politician and a mediocre politician is the extent to which they've got the confidence to just say what feels right in the moment. And they don't need to go away and read loads of opinion polls and like sit in loads of focus groups and like construct an answer, you know, as if you're sort of adding all these different components together. They naturally have a gift to understand how the public think and how to land an answer. And Keir Starmer, I'm sorry to say, he just hasn't got it. And I never thought he had it, but I extra think he doesn't have it after this latest thing. There's another thing this perhaps tells us about Keir Starmer, which is that I think he's been following what you might call a small target strategy, which is not saying much or doing much, really. So as you present as small a target as you can to your opponents, which is why then a lot of voters think he's sort of boring and he sits on the fence and he's tedious and he's sort of blank. But the problem with being blank is you constantly run the danger of someone else portraying you and coming up with their own story about who you are because the public don't know you. And if that story is now that you're a hypocrite and you've got an immoral fury about something you were doing yourself, he hasn't really got an answer to that because he's because the idea of who he is isn't really there with the public. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the small target strategy thing is interesting. I mean, another a more generous way of putting that is that he's understood that his 
that you know he's up against Boris Johnson you know the, the thing to do is to just to be the grown up in the room and essentially understand that at some stage Boris Johnson's own flaws will be his undoing and you can be there to represent sort of maturity and seriousness in government which actually was I think working for him fairly well I think the bigger problem is the one that Sonia highlighted which is that ultimately there is just a lot of politics as performance and at that stage you have to look like you're enjoying being in front of the public and enjoying being out there because you've got something that you desperately want to tell people about. And the thing about Keir Starmer, in my sense, is that, you know, and this is interestingly, you pick this up from people who, who knew him before he was a politician, when he was a barrister, that he was effective because he built a case really strongly, not because he delivered it brilliantly in court. And I think there's that what you want to see is a sense that he, he can't wait to share with you what he's got to say. And you get the exact opposite from him, which is he's got something to say, but like, does he have to do it now? Because he's actually, he's got somewhere else to be and he's got to stop doing that because that's what comes across as shifty. I mean, I think what this says to me is that even before so-called beer gate, thanks chiefly to the daily mail became a thing. My sense, particularly when we went to Plymouth last week and talked to voters was that party gate was encouraging this idea of it of the rot running much wider and deeper than Boris Johnson and somehow it it gave people another reason to think the worst of all politicians and the problem is if you've got another story then about the leader of the opposition then that point is taken to its logical conclusion and you've got a real problem about public trust that's what worries me about this now let's move on to Boris Johnson um good morning Britain have been making all the running this week Boris Johnson did an interview with Susanna Reid at the crack of dawn I thought um her interview was brilliant actually I thought the extent to which she used her 20 you're nodding Sonia the extent to which she used her 20 minutes to brilliant effect and got all her questions in and was sort of forceful and really effective and got him constantly on the back foot was quite something to watch um I think aside from not knowing who Lorraine Kelly was ha ha the main sort of point of conversation about that interview um has proved to be what happened when Susanna Reid asked him about a pensioner called Elsie? And this is what happened. Elsie is 77. She's a widow and she's a pensioner who lives in a council house. She receives a pension of £170 a week. Her energy bills have gone, get this, from £17 a month to £85 a month. Yeah. She will pay an additional £816 a year. To cut down on spending, Prime Minister, Elsie has now resorted to eating one meal a day. She's 77 years old. She's losing weight. She gets up early in the morning to use her Freedom Bus Pass to stay on buses all day to avoid using energy at home. What else should Elsie cut back on? Well, I don't want Elsie to cut back on anything. Let's talk about, about Elsie and what we're, uh, what, we're, what we're doing. And I just remind you that the uh, the 24-hour Freedom Bus Pass was something that I actually introduced, just, just parenthetically. Marvellous. So Elsie should but, be grateful but, but, to you no, for her bus no, pass. But, but... Astonishing. It's not even true. It's, I mean, that's the thing. Is, it's, 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 it's massively narcissistic to basically think, well, the f- most important thing here is, can I just polish a little bit of my record here? And, and it's even a kind of a falsification of the record. I mean, he sort of extended it for to 24 hours, but the actual Freedom Pass, the bit that this poor woman was using to get on the bus first thing in the morning, that predated Boris Johnson. It's, it's, it's the most extraordinary combination of, you know, to take someone else's unhappiness and misfortune, sort of 
squeeze it through the weird kind of effects pedal of your own narcissism <laughs> so it becomes this weird distorted echo effect of slight self-pity and evasion god what well, i mean what an utterly repellent thing to have said frankly and that's 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 objective analysis not opinion i just gave you i mean there's a serious point here which is on the one hand it's just so callous and so revealing of how our prime minister thinks in the moment But on the other, when you set it aside, it really starts to make sense of some of the terrible policies that we've seen and the terrible battles the government has picked over the last couple of years. I mean, going to war with Marcus Rashford, not once, not twice, but three times over holiday hunger, childhood holiday hunger. I think it really is quite revealing, actually, of the extent to which, you know, they hear about these experiences. And it's quite clear he doesn't care that much, does he? And the thing is, I suspect that as ministers are asked more and more about the cost of living and as the cost of living gets more and more impossible we're going to see more and more of these moments i mean not long after johnson's one we we had another one uh, on the day we're talking uh george eustace um the the defra minister was asked what families who are experiencing the cost of living crisis should do and he said this Generally speaking, you know, what people find is that by going for some of the sort of value brands rather than, uh, you know, own branded uh, products, they can actually sort of contain and, and manage their household budget. But it will undoubtedly put a pressure on household budgets. And of course, it comes on top of those high gas prices as well. Let's, uh, we need to be careful here, though, in terms of... I mean, obviously, these things are kind of ludicrous and... and Why do we laughable. need to be careful? They're no, not okay, being well, careful. Be careful about the... Poli- about reading too much into how the effect that this might have. I mean, I remember okay. there was a lot of this. Do you remember, you know, Francis Maud and, you know, putting a keeping a jerry can of petrol in your bathroom <laughs> and kitchen suppers. Do you remember? I mean, all, there was, you know, when, when it was when when David Cameron and George Osborne, two, you know, an old Etonian and uh, some St. Paul's or whatever school George Osborne went to, two basically Bullingdon posh boys inflicting austerity on the country labor tried so hard to go to town on this stuff and say they're out of touch and they were posh and it was all true and and david cameron won a majority at the end of it and i think there is an element of this that's sort of priced in with the tories and at the moment it's particularly damaging and harmful but i don't know out to what extent that you know will really shift the dial in terms of attitudes to the conservative party as distinct from general anger about but the economy doesn't that go back to what, can we just say this doesn't that go back to what sonny said a moment ago which is the point is this symbolizes where they are in all sorts of ways and so if if they're making these these awful statements in the midst of putting up national insurance and and batting away any idea of a windfall tax on the energy companies and essentially having no real meaningful substantial answers to the rising cost of living then these things acquire weight don't they yeah i think they tell you something so to to clarify i mean obviously it does a lot of damage and it's bad and and it's you know aligns with existing problems that the conservative party brand has i just don't know to what extent you know if in a year's time, the, you know, the economy, the inflation has worked its way through the system and the economy is picking up again. People will really remember this and go, those evil bastard Tories, I'm never voting for them again. I'm going to vote Labour instead. What will really be on people's minds when it comes to the next election is the reality of the economy, how it's making its felt on their household budgets. And I think the big difference between 2015 and 2022 is that the economy in 2022 and the the amount that people have to stretch a dwindling amount of income to sort of cover real basics like heating, food on the table, etc. That is going to feel profoundly worse for a lot of families in 2022. 
when that lack of care starts to make itself felt in people's, you know, really felt in everyday, in people's everyday lives, um, I find it hard to see how the government will not suffer some consequence for that, even if it doesn't sort of hand Labour a stonking 1997 level majority. Because, I mean, let's face it, Labour have got a lot to do <laughs> before well, they ever get okay. anywhere near like yes. anywhere near that. <laughs> I mean, also, ima- imagine um, ministers and the prime minister saying things like this come the autumn. I mean, because the, the extent of the cost of living crisis by that point, I think that all the signs are it's going to be unthinkable and and they need better policies. But also, I mean, whether they can sound different notes on this is an interesting question because it shines light on the sort of people they are. And I would expect this distance between the people in power and what and what huge numbers of people are going through is going to become even more pronounced anyway. So micro thought on that. Also, the fact that Rishi Sunak has now goes into this damaged by other things also is a massive vulnerability for the government because they haven't got a chancellor. OK. Rishi Sunak is stuffed and he's paying £12,000 a year to heat his swimming pool. Did you know that? There's another one of those things. Right. Really, it's like 1789 all over again. Let's pause for a minute. We're going to talk next about the sudden attention, quite rightly, being paid to sleaze and sexism in Parliament. Coming soon, a four-part investigative series... A new civil rights division has been set up in New Orleans. Their task? To re-examine thousands of cases and work out whether those people should still be in prison. This six-month investigation takes you into the heart of the Deep South and asks, is it possible to right the wrongs of the past? Listen to The Division New Orleans from this Friday, 6th of May and across the weekend on Today in Focus. lot of important skills to get our job done. But honestly, everything we need won't be on your CV. Because as the whole energy industry is transforming, a change mindset is as important as your skills. I'm Melanie Forbrick, and I work at Siemens Energy. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. Welcome back. Now, uh, one of this week's and last week's, in fact, most obvious political questions. Is there a culture of sexism and misogyny in Parliament? Clearly, those things are nothing new, but they've zoomed into the foreground very recently because of two things, really. Um, The resignation of the former Conservative MP Neil Parrish and the sexist treatment of Angela Rayner in a series of Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday articles sprinkled with off-the-record quotes from Tory MPs. So just to give us a reminder of what's been happening, here's Neil Parrish, the former MP for Tiverton and Honiton. The uh, situation was that, that um, I, uh, funnily enough, it was tractors that I was looking at, and um, so I did get into another website um, that had a sort of very similar name, um, and I watched it for a bit, which I shouldn't have done. But my my crime, my biggest crime, um, is that on another occasion I went in a second time. And that was deliberately. And that was deliberate. Do you remember that comedy show, Human Remains, where they used, they used to sort of focus on the most pitiful, awful, squirm-inducing aspects of human existence? That somehow had echoes of all that. That was him explaining how he'd watched pornography twice on his smartphone, um, on the Commons estate, um, at least once in the chamber. Now, obviously, inevitably, that 
reopened a huge conversation up about sexism and misogyny in Parliament. Caroline Noakes, quite senior Conservative MP, called out her own party for being institutionally sexist. And the ICGS, Parliament's independent watchdog, has confirmed that around 15 MPs are currently being investigated for alleged bullying and misconduct. I mean, there are sort of practical thoughts about this as well. I wonder what exactly it means for that many people to be under investigation. I mean, are we looking at sort of even more by-elections imminently? The thing that really sort of strikes me about this, though, is we've had all these conversations before in 2017 at the time of Me Too. We know how bad this is in Parliament. We have plenty of people, not not even just female MPs, but female staff who are in an even more vulnerable position in relation to um, male MPs in terms of that power imbalance coming forward. And so they've experienced all sorts of things. And um, you would have hoped that that might have led to some form of change, but it hasn't. And it feels like we're kind of in exactly the same place. There's obviously been this lag, hasn't there, that whereas other workplaces, I mean, even what, 20, 25, even 30 years ago, began to be mindful of sexism and misogyny and to make changes. It does feel like Parliament's lagged behind. But then also, um, I spoke to someone the other day who said they'd spoken to a number of women Tory MPs about this, who felt that there was a sense of a bad example being set from the top, really, um, and that Boris Johnson's premiership had maybe set things back in the sense that he sort of embodies, oh, do what you like, a general sense of impunity. Um, One could argue that in his own sort of backstory, the treatment of women on occasion hasn't been very, very good. He certainly had a habit of saying offensive things for the sake of causing offence. And all of that stuff then feeds in to the atmosphere getting worse under his watch. What do you think of that idea? I mean, I do do think that who is at the top really matters in terms of um, leadership. And so it certainly won't have helped that Boris Johnson is prime minister. But I do think, I mean, this is such a long-standing issue. And I think actually the the problem, because I mean, it's also an issue in the Labour Party as well as the Conservative Party. It's a cross-party issue. And I think actually some of it just comes down to the fact that that people just, you know, changing cultures and... uh, creating a culture of zero tolerance around misogyny and sexism and inappropriate sexual conduct in the workplace. That's really hard work. It takes quite a lot of effort and it has to be a priority of the people who are running an institution or an organisation. And quite frankly, I just don't think people care enough. Do you want to hear the sound perhaps of someone who doesn't care quite enough? Here's Quasi Quarting. I don't think uh, there's a culture of misogyny. I think the problem we have uh, is that people are working in a really uh, intense environment Uh, There are long hours. Um, And I think generally, most people uh, know their limits. They know how to act respectfully. But there are some instances where people uh, don't, frankly, act uh, according to the highest standards. Have you ever found that, Raf? You work long hours and by about the 11th hour in the office, you just suddenly start hating women. Or just suddenly feel you need to put your hands on someone you don't know because, you know, they're there. It's interesting. I mean, two things, really. One, you know, I think Sonia's right to point out that yeah, there, there's been an issue with this in the Labour Party as well. Um, you skimmed over, John, I think quite an important point here, though, which is about like there are no, there's no kind of HR function, particularly not in an MP's office. You know, the, the MP hires the researcher, you know, in terms of like you know, how this connects with the, the Me Too 
moment that you know we had a couple of years ago that should have been a bigger cultural event in politics reminds me of that great phrase whoever coined it you know saying politics is showbiz for ugly people it is quite showbiz so it's like the music industry or the film industry in the way that someone has an aura of power that's how you get promoted you have to get close to that person to get promoted there's no actual proceed procedures there's no it's all so it's such a trade and a barter of power for influence and it, I think it's actually something of the psychology of these people that it expresses itself in really, really appalling behaviours and without, without any kind of cultural institutional restraint. There might be another thing. There may be another thing to be said, which is about the background of MPs, particularly of a certain age, who perhaps came out of all male public schools and then Oxbridge um, and about the attitudes that that maybe 20 or 30 years ago, defined those sorts of institutions. So just recently, I've, read, I've been reading a brilliant book by Simon Cooper, the Financial Times journalist, called Chums, which is essentially about how uh, Boris Johnson and Brexit and, and, and the Conservative Party, as it is now, arose from public schools and Oxford in the 1980s. And he talks about those places at that time being very sort of inherently misogynistic environments he writes this is me quoting him political correctness was not rampant at the time in 1985 most oxford colleges had either one or zero female fellows the colleges in the 1980s could still appear like men's clubs with ladies wings at meetings of my college's junior common room if a woman tried to speak it was customary for men to chant get your tits out for the lads i mean that's where where an inordinate number of our politicians originated i, I mean i was at oxford in the late 1980s and that account sort of rings true in retrospect it's cultures of entitlement isn't it and people not i think it's quite tied to a certain type of man and it tends to be you know a man who's quite attracted to things like politics and showbiz as you say raf but they're not really understanding why someone might want to say no to them so there's an expectation that everyone just kind of everyone would be delighted to be accosted by this man i, I genuinely think there is some of that but i think you're right john that it it, it comes through public school cultures, you know, Oxford in the 1980s. That was before my time. It sounds really dreadful. Yeah, I mean, when I arrived at Oxford University in 1989, and uh, prior to that, I'd been at a sixth form college in central Manchester, where, because it was the 80s, and that was sort of the culture, everybody leaned left, and it wasn't called woke or anything then. But, you know, you had conversations about not being a sexist arsehole, basically. That was just sort of in the culture. And then I arrived at this little college where there were sort of two or three hundred people and I came face to face with the sort of person I'd never come across before which is privately educated rugger buggers that's what they were called whose attitudes <laughs> to women you know they were just sort of thoroughly unreconstructed you know once every two or three weeks one of them would come down to the student bar while everyone was trying to have a quiet pint and take off all his clothes and wave his willy around you know and I'm, I'm just, you're pulling a face. That's a good face on you. And I'm just sort of, I, I'm acutely aware. It's my disgusted time. face. <laughs> that's, that's where, that's where a lot of front rank politicians cut their teeth, you know, and they probably weren't looking at that stuff with a feeling of horror. They were sort of used to it. I, I, I wonder about, uh, what this means for the public mood. And again, this sense of disconnection, right? Because all of this, although it's in, a, it's very different, it's focused in a different, field right but it, it comes not that long after the mp's expenses scandal and all the rest of it and it and it it confirms people's worst thoughts about politicians and power and all the rest of it uh, unfortunately i think that um the wider public cares 
um, a bit less about misogyny as an electoral issue than we do inside the Guardian building would be my would be my guess. Really? But I, women, women, women voters decide elections, right? They're yeah, a that's hugely true. Important, that's true. important part of that's the electoral true. landscape. I mean, I think, I, I tell you what, I think the porn stuff really cuts through. And, and then just confirms that politics isn't really worth paying attention to and it's thoroughly morally compromised and that whatever politicians say, there's this whole mess of sort of immorality and selfishness and awfulness behind it. My biggest underlying fear at the moment in, about the state of the politics is, as you say, that there, there's a sort of a plague on all their houses culture or feeling that goes out of this stuff and there's an awful lot of anger and frustration that was so potent in 2018 2019 that's still really energy out there available for someone and i don't necessarily think it will turn into a big vote for the labor party but it could do a lot of harm or damage somewhere there's a sort of a still a trumpian ball of potential energy in british politics for someone to tap and it makes me uncomfortable that i don't see where it's going to go Okay, then let's talk just very, very briefly to finish about something that's happening this week, which are local elections. I suppose, following on from the conversation that we've just had for the last 30 or 40 minutes, what I look at is turnout, really. I mean, turnout in local elections is always pretty poor, but in an atmosphere like we've got now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if in many places it gets down to the teens and high 20s, if you feel lucky, you know. It's not going to be very pretty in that regard. I don't feel that people are itching to get out and exercise their democratic rights, really. It doesn't feel like that. I mean, that has always traditionally been slightly helpful for Labour, which has had the better ground operation, better at getting people out. I don't know if that's still true, but that was, and Son, you might correct me here, but that was always slightly the feeling that, you know, Labour always just got a little bit more of a machine for just, you know, get out the vote. I I think you're right, John. I think that the extent to which it will just feel like a a huge, great gob of phlegm spat on the Westminster pavement by whoever bothers to turn out will probably be the main story. (laughs) Aside from the gob of phlegm, Politics to me at the moment just feels a bit like trench warfare. I mean, notwithstanding all of these stories and scandals that quite rightly fly around and that we all quite rightly fixate on, both parties are sort of dug in. In most polls, there's about five or six percentage points between them. And that feels to me like the way it's going to stay for quite a while. So in that sense, much as it would be nice to get in a real lather of excitement about these local elections, it's not really going to be like that, is it, Sonia? I don't think you're nodding again. No, I don't think so. I think politics to me at the moment feels quite negative. So it feels like scandals and really negative stories breaking. You know, there are some really big questions facing us as a country over the next 20 or 30 years. You know, things like how are we going to pay for social care? How might we want to reform our system of post-18 education? Like really big questions. I find politics quite hard to get excited about at the minute. Let's put it like that, because it doesn't feel like we're talking about the long term. And we do it for a living. So imagine how how people who don't are paid to care about this stuff feel about it. Well, we're about to find out, I suppose. I mean, there are a few flashes of interest. I will be I will be interested to see, for example, whether commuter towns and suburbs that have traditionally been Tory carry on this sort of passage to the political left which has been accelerated by things like people moving out of London and working from home increasing. I think that's going to be very interesting. It will be interesting to see if the Labour Party is making progress in the so-called red wall. It's not without interest, this stuff. I'm saying that as someone who's paid to be interested and excited about it. But do you know what I mean? It's not It's not completely tedious. It will tell us something. Worthing will be interesting in the former of those categories. You know, Berry will be interesting in the latter. You know, these are... But we're nerds. Yes, well, Worthing is a, is a perfectly nerdy place on, on which to end much as I love talking about Worthing. Maybe we'll be back next week to talk about Worthing in a slightly worthy, Worthing way. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Raphael Baer and Sonia Soda. 
thanks, John. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having us on, John. And thank you to you for listening. One more thing before you go. The Glastonbury Festival, Glasto, is finally back after two long years. And as part of our partnership with the festival, we have 10 pairs of tickets to give away. To enter Worthy Winners, that's the name of the competition, ho-ho, all you need to do is to nominate someone you believe deserves to win one of 10 pairs of tickets to Glastonbury. The prize draw ends on the 8th of May, so you don't have much time left to enter. Enter our prize draw worthy winners to nominate someone you think deserves to win one of 10 pairs of tickets to this year's Glastonbury. Check the details on this podcast page for how to enter. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena. The music was by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll see you again next week. This is The Guardian. lot of important skills to get our job done but honestly everything we need won't be on your cv because as the whole energy industry is transforming a change mindset is as important as your skills i'm melanie forbrick and i work at siemens energy learn more at siemensenergy.com